Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. While you're turning there, let me alert you that I what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage as we move through the sermon. I think that that will help it flow a little bit better um, rather than me reading it now and then referring to something that uh, may be less familiar to you. I'll just uh, refer you to the passage as we go along. So let's pray together. Father, I ask that uh, as your word is opened up, as it is proclaimed, also as it is read, I pray that your word would have uh, full uh, reign over us. Your word is authoritative and uh, your word is timeless. Uh, Your word is the lamp unto our feet. God, I pray that your spirit would apply your word to us, that uh, we might um, have the mind of Christ, that we might uh, honor you, that we might not lose our saltiness, but would be a preservative, would be a light uh, shining forth your good works. Um, here in this very uh, dark world and society in which we live. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know that it is my practice to preach through books of the Bible. You also know that we're in the book of Genesis. You know last week that I preached in um, from Genesis chapter 18. So naturally, here we are in chapter 19 this week. So I say this to point out that I did not plan to preach on Sodom and Gomorrah this week after the, the um, Supreme Court rulings on gay marriage came out. Uh, I have been planning to preach Genesis 19 for some weeks, even months, uh, on this date. But this intersection of God's Word and the issues that uh, are before our nation remind me just how relevant God's Word is to every generation of people and to every society. I'm going to, this morning, uh, directly uh, address the Bible's view of homosexuality, Uh, but I must make it clear from the very beginning that this is not the major application of Genesis 19. In fact, God's destruction of Sodom Sodom and Gomorrah is not the greatest warning here in this passage. The real message, the real warning, is not primarily directed to homosexuality, but rather it is directed to Christians who are flirting with worldliness. Let me show you what I mean. But uh, first, I want to remind you uh, how from last week the Lord uh, and two angels were on their way to investigate the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. And they stopped off to visit with Abraham uh, while they were on their way. After visiting with Abraham, the two angels continued on. And uh, we come here to chapter 19. These two angels are just arriving uh, at the gate of the city of Sodom. Uh, 
And so look with, with me at the Scriptures. Genesis 19, verses 1 through 3. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. This is really something. You remember in Genesis chapter 13 how Abram uh, gave his nephew Lot a choice of wherever he might want to live. He could live wherever. And Lot chose the cities of the plain. He chose uh, the Jordan Valley. And so when we in, in chapter 13 it says that Lot then picked up and moved his tents and he uh, was living as far as Sodom. But it doesn't say he's living in Sodom. But we come to chapter 19 and here he is. He is living in Sodom. Not only that, he is sitting in the city gates. In ancient Near Eastern cultures, this meant that uh, he had become a man of prominence in the city. He had become a man of prominence, signifying that he, is, he had assimilated into the life of the city, into a city that was so wicked that God had singled it out for destruction. It would be easy to write off Lot as an unbeliever. But the Scripture says otherwise. In fact, Abraham believed Lot to be a righteous man. He believed Lot to be a believer. Remember Abraham's prayer for Lot uh, and for the city? If there's uh, even ten righteous people in the city, will you destroy it? Because Abraham knew that Lot was a righteous man and he was living in Sodom. And then there's this in 2 Peter chapter 2. Uh, Peter, in reminding his readers that God res rescues the godly from trials and from persecutions, he says in 2 Peter 2 verses 7 through 10, if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting, uh, tormented in his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So here Peter says three times that Lot was righteous. Not only that, that Lot was distressed and tormented in his soul because of the wicked culture in which he was living. And then the question would become, well, Lot... Why didn't you pick up and move? You had the means necessary. Uh, I mean, he was a wealthy man. That's probably why he became a man of prominence. He could have moved to a different city. He could have moved to a different area. So why did he not? Well, Sodom was a very wealthy city. Uh, it was a very wealthy city on a very uh, fertile, um, a, a very fertile plain of land. 
And Lot was obviously making lots of money, which I think explains why he considered why he was considered a prominent man, and also why he did not move, even though he was tormented in his soul because of the wickedness in the city. You know, a man has to do what a man has to do in order to earn a living, right? Even if it means compromise. Even if it means inner turmoil. What about it, men? Is a little worldliness, a little compromise tolerable for you to earn a nice living for your family? And by the way, if you're wondering how we know Sodom was a wealthy city, the archaeologists have found a great city on the Fertile Plain in the Jordan Valley that was buried underneath nearly uh, three feet of dark gray ash. And under the ash they found pottery. Uh, the pottery of the city, and it was, and this is the archaeologist's words here, it was covered with a frothy, melted surface, surface with a glassy appearance, which indicates that the pottery was briefly exposed to temperatures well in excess of 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, the approximate heat of volcanic magma. Only there were no volcanic, uh, there were no volcanoes in the area. And so they've excavated and they assumed that uh, this city was indeed a prominent and great city. Uh, verse 3 says that Lot strongly pressed these angels to stay with, him, stay with him in his home rather than stay in the city square during the night. Gordon Wenham is a... Uh, is a great commentator, Old Testament commentator, and he says that the Hebrew word uh, in verse 3, when it says that Lot pressed them strongly, that it could be translated, he manhandled them. So strongly did Lot uh, press the angels not to stay in the city. It's almost like he took them and wrestled them away from the city square and took them forceful, uh, forcefully into his home. Why would Lot be so insistent on not allowing these angels to stay in the city square? Well, the Scripture tells us. Uh, so look at your Bibles. Verses 4 through 11. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came out to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. 
But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. You get the sense here that their lust was so great that even after they are struck blind, they are still groping for the door, still trying to get after these men that had come into the city. I think it's appropriate in light of our nation's direction with respect to the sanctity of marriage and sexual ethics to um, to briefly um, address homosexuality uh, directly from a biblical perspective. The Bible only speaks of marriage from the standpoint of being between a man and a woman. Uh, and the Bible clearly condemns same-sex sexual relations. Uh, I've got three different passages in my notes. Um, certainly by no means uh, an exhaustive list. But Leviticus 18.22 says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. We read Romans um, 1.18-32. And just briefly, you'll remember the wrath of God. It says in Romans 1, "...is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth." And it goes on and it says that because they denied God, they began worshiping created things rather than the Creator. In other words, they became idolaters. For although they uh, knew God, they did not honor Him as God or gave thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And so verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In my experience, this passage gives great hope to people who are struggling with homosexuality because it tells them that their homosexuality is not because of any kind of defect in birth or any kind or, or because of their DNA, but rather it results from idolatry. Idolatry that can be repented of. Um, one person was overjoyed when they heard that the Bible said this because they felt condemned and they felt like they were imprisoned. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that homosexuality is only one sinful practice among many sinful practices here in this passage. All those who practice any of these things, according to 
This passage, and there are other little mini-lists like it um, throughout the New Testament, um, it clearly says, if you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Bible offers hope to those who are entrapped um, in these, in any of these sinful practices. Because I read verses 9 and 10, but I didn't read verse 11. Listen to verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Gospel offers hope for change, hope for forgiveness of sins, hope for a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Now I want to drill down for a moment more and ask this question. How are Christians to treat or to view homosexuals? The Bible has a very clear answer. I read from Romans 1 how homosexuals uh, I'm sorry, how homosexuality grows out of, out of idolatry. It is Paul, part of Paul's larger argument that I, that I um, mentioned earlier in Romans chapter 3. Paul's intent in Romans chapters 1 through 3 is to, uh, is to make the case that all are sinners, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5 says that we are all enemies of God. But through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. In other words, homosexuals are sinners just like us. Homosexuals are enemies of God just like us. But God so loved sinners that He sent His only begotten Son to die for sinners. God was so compassionate to His enemies that He sent His Son to bear their sins. In other words, how are we to view homosexuals? How are we to treat homosexuals? We are to love and be compassionate toward them because God has loved us and has shown us His great mercy and compassion. To treat homosexuals with contempt is the height of pride. Now we're going to have a temptation. I think it's going to be a very strong temptation to respond to homosexuality with contempt because the homosexual agenda is aiming to destroy our religious freedom. There's an effort to define the biblical view of homosexuality as hate speech, and therefore uh, they would like to outlaw it. Um, I think this is already evident in the Illinois marriage law where churches that do not allow same-sex uh, unions essentially have to um, close their doors to full participation in civil society. Or to preach about the biblical view of homosexuality in Canada um, is already against the law. Quoting Bible verses that I um, have read already amount to harming the public discourse the government has ruled. 
in the military, uh, you can uh, ask um, ask our own uh, retired military chaplain. Uh, chaplains are increasingly uh, not being allowed to speak about the biblical view of homosexuality, uh, and they are being persecuted. The temptation for Christians, and I can feel it even in I can feel it inside myself when I read um, some of the 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 the, uh, the things that are being written today. Uh, the temptation will be to respond in kind as our civil liberties and as our religious freedoms are attacked. But if we do that, we will lose the war and dishonor God in the process. In fact, the reason we are losing ground uh, to, the, to the homosexual agenda is not primarily because of those who are pressing the agenda. The real reason we're losing ground is because of our own worldliness in the church. We are allowing ourselves to be so much like the world that we don't know how to be distinct from the world. For the first time in our country, according to the, the, the public polling, um, the opinion polls tell us more Americans are for homosexual marriage than those who are against it. I don't know if it's a majority yet, but if you take out the people who don't know whether it's right or wrong, there are more people, according to the opinion polls, um, that uh, believe that it is right um, than those who are against it. And many of those who are saying that homosexual marriage is right are sitting in our churches today all across the nation. Not only had Lot taken up residence in Sodom, but he had promised his daughters in marriage to the men who lived in Sodom. Look again at verse 4. It says here in verse 4, Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. This passage, this verse wants us to understand that the, the two men that were engaged to Lot's daughters, that Lot was going to allow his daughters to marry, were outside his door, eager, even trying to break in to have homosexual relations with these men. Well, we know these angels that Lot had taken into his home. Not only that, um, Lot's family was so tied to the city that the next morning, when it was time for, the, for them to leave and for God to destroy uh, the city, um, the, the angels had to manhandle them to get them out of the city had to take them and remove them. Even Lot lingered. Look at verses 15 and 16. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered. 
So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to them, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. It's very likely that Lot's wife was um, a woman who had, was born and raised in Sodom. Um, and um, as the city was being destroyed, she may have been thinking about loved ones in the city. She may have been thinking, probably thinking about all the wealth and her possessions in the city. Lot lingered. But he didn't linger as long as his wife. And you know what happened to her. Um, She was turned into a pillar of salt. Look at verses 23 through 26. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. You know, I, I saw these little movies and, and storybooks when I was little, of, and it looked like she was just kind of glancing back with a little a, a longing look. But I think it was more than that. I think um, that she uh, really did linger because she really didn't want to leave. She felt comfortable in that wicked city. She felt comfortable in her re- surroundings. And so... She not only looked back, but she lingered. Uh, and because she tarried, um, she was she died. Maybe she died as the sulfurous gases came down, and she was leaning upon something. And anyway, she became a corpse. And as her body was was exposed, it was encrusted in the salt and debris. You know, this was right by the, the Dead Sea. And so she became a pillar of salt. It's very interesting for those of you who, who know the biblical history. Josephus actually said that he had seen um, the... Uh, the pillar of salt that was Lot's wife. He lived. He was a contemporary of Jesus and, and wrote a history of the Jews at that time. All that. And we could go on and we could look at Lot's daughters and how ungodly they were if we were to go on and, and, uh, and look at verses 30 through 38. I just don't even know how to read it here in... in uh, in, in, in your presence with, with small children around um, these, these verses. But the point is, Lot went to Sodom. He was tormented in his soul, um, but yet the prosperity that he had there was more important to him. He was a righteous man. He was a believer. But he loved the world at the same time. Does it torment you when our world acts um, sinfully? When our society uh, rejects God and pursues sensuality, pursues greed, pursues ungodliness? 
Or are you such a part of the world that you say, hmm, I enjoy that. There were consequences for Lot's worldliness. He would be like that man in, uh, that Paul talks about um, escaping, making it, into, making it into heaven, but escaping as one through the fire or whatever. Um, but, uh, but he was worldly. And I want you to, to ask yourself, where do I need to repent? What areas of my life do I need to give to the Lord that He might shave off? The church, as I was teaching the children, is to be the preservative in society. The church is to be the light of the world. What happens if our light grows dim? As dim as the world's. What happens if our preservative effect becomes worthless? Our society goes down the tubes at a quicker pace, as is happening. The real application of this passage is flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let Him shine His light into your life so that you might reflect His righteousness, His glory out to a world that so desperately needs Him. And if you're hanging on to your own worldliness, it's just like putting your light underneath a bowl. No one can see it. It is useless. It's just like the salt that has lost its saltiness. Good for nothing to be except to be thrown out, trampled underfoot by men. The Bible says that there is righteousness in Jesus Christ. That was Lot's hope. He was righteous because he trusted in God. Regardless of where you find yourself this morning, flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's righteousness enough for you to shine in Him. There's righteousness, righteousness enough for you to be able to stand before a holy God. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for this congregation. I pray for every congregation that names the name of Jesus Christ. Help us to be that preservative in our society. Help us to be a light set upon a hill so that a watching world might see our good works and not only give praise to You, but understand and know that Jesus Christ is the light of the world and the Lord of glory. Father, I pray that You would help us to, um, to shave off those areas of our life that are blunting our witness Help us to repent of our worldliness. Help us to be um, the people of Jesus Christ, not only in our confession, but also in our lives. We ask in His name. Amen.